0: My name is George W. Brown, and I'm here to tell you more of my story. What I'm about to tell you is when I quit buffalo hunting to become a merchant for a whiskey-selling enterprise. This is when I had a speculative turn of mind, a time when most of the buffalo herds north of the Arkansas River were but very few. I'd been looking for new hunting grounds, and the commander at Fort Dodge would provide me permission to hunt south of the Arkansas River. I remembered hearing from other buffalo hunters about the settler store located on the post. The place was owned and run by a man named Wright. Rumor had it he sold whiskey from a private bar along with supplies to buffalo hunters. My ambitions at the time were to purchase merchandise and find a little diversion before heading out on my next hunt. We camped out that evening on a river bend near the fort and waited for Billy's return. As luck would have it, Billy found us the next morning. Billy told us the Prairie Dog moved on out west to the Texas Panhandle. Charlie and I left Billy in charge of our campsite, and on the morning of June 7, 1872, we traveled to the fort to purchase supplies and whiskey at the Sutler's store. Charlie and I found the place in disarray. Come to find out, the post commander banned the sale of all whiskey on the premises. While I was in the store, I ran into a feller by the name of Herman Fringer. Charlie was feeling as dejected as I was about not having a sip of our favorite Frontier beverage. As I leaned against the empty bar, my new acquaintance, Herman Fringer, gave me the lowdown on the situation. It seems as if the new colonel by the name of Richard Irving Dodge, stated Herman, who assumed command of the fort, found one of his officers, a Lieutenant Turner, drinking. Not only had he been drinking, but was reprimanded in front of the enlisted men of his company. From the stories being told around the post, Colonel Dodge explained to the tipsy lieutenant he was in breach of military etiquette. I guess the reprimand displeased the lieutenant, and he took a swing at Colonel Dodge, knocking him to the floor. So was it the lieutenant who was the cause of banning whiskey on the post, I asked. Herman looked at me with amusement. Well, Lieutenant Turner may have been the main cause, explained Herman, but not the entire reason for stopping the sale of whiskey. To add to the problems, the assistant post surgeon recently filed a complaint with the new post commander. Dr. Tremaine filed a formal complaint expressing his concern over the amount of whiskey being smuggled through the hospital. Tremaine, harshly informed Colonel Dodge, Tremaine must have the support of his commanding officer. From what I understand, the good doctor was in a quandary about the health of the soldiers. Tremaine could not be expected to nurse the soldiers back to health at the present rate of consumption. To make things worse, continued Herman, the complaint from Dr. Tremaine named the proprietor of the sutler's store, Mr. Wright, my boss, as the primary whiskey smuggling culprit. Thinking this may be the end of Herman's story, I let out a sigh of relief and steadied myself against the mahogany bar. But that's not all, Herman said. To make the situation worse, the next day a small detachment assigned to deliver mail at Fort Supply had become so intoxicated overnight they could not mount their horses. The incident caused the officer of the day in charge of the detail to close Sutler's Bar to all enlisted men. It did not take the new post commander long until he ordered the stop to all sale of whiskey on the post. Well, my friend, said Herman... If you're looking for a drink, then you're in luck, as whiskey will never run dry in these parts. Rumor has it that if you head out about five miles west of here, a feller by the name of Hoover will be setting up a tent operation. My friend Herman Fringer glowed with delight at the news he imparted. His plans are to start selling whiskey this morning off a wooden plank. He purchased a lot from the formation of a new town company. I took my friend Herman's advice, purchased supplies, and loaded up my half-empty freighter. I then traveled five miles west of the fort with my team master and skinners. It did not take long to locate Hoover's new establishment. The sight of this place amazed me. The place had an uneasy appeal to me like an unknown world wild with chaos. The establishment was like a boar circled by hunters and hounds, all eager for a taste of the liquid to take them to the verge of drunkenness. Sitting in the middle of a vast prairie, a large crowd had gathered around a shady tent of a bar. A line of freight wagons, horses, soldiers, and a multitude of buffalo hunters all camped out around a makeshift tent. The only other structure within sight was a sawed house owned by the first settler of these parts, Mr. Sittler. After dismounting, I lined myself up in the next available spot to the plank bar. I noticed Mr. Hoover with his French Canadian accent serving whiskey. I watched him move back and forth between customers, serving shots of whiskey at the front plank and filling up a tray of shot glasses at the back of the tent. I decided to strike up a conversation with him. I asked about his enterprise and how he came to this place. His conversation with me went in and out as men shouted over each other demanding quicker service. It was in this state of total confusion he began telling me his story. I had learned of the fort commander's desire to stop selling whiskey on the post from Robert Wright. So I knew there was going to be a great demand to satisfy the thirst of men in these parts. Hoover explained. Mr. Hoover continued, the owner of the post supply store and post commander set out plans for a township in the very area of which we're standing. This was the agreement between Mr. Wright and the post commander. The post commander, Colonel Dodge, wanted to get the whiskey business off the ground. I felt it was my obligation not to fill the needs of a thirsty crowd, stated Hoover. This idea of the sale of alcohol meant I needed two things, a place to sell it and the barrels to supply it. I knew a freighter who had a wagon and went to Kansas City. I purchased a wagon load of whiskey and brought it back to Fort Dodge. But you knew you couldn't sell the whiskey on U.S. government property, I said. Right, Hoover explained. The western border of the reservation was five miles from the fort itself. So I decided to mark off five miles from the fort. To take a true measurement of the distance traveled, I tied a rag to a wheel on my wagon. Hoover then pointed to his wagon, where I saw a red rag tied to the spoke of a wheel. So here I am today, explained Hoover. My first day of operation, running short on whiskey, I never dreamed I would have so much business on opening day. I will soon need to expand. In fact, Hoover boasted, I'm going to have to start building me a structure like that one tomorrow. Hoover pointed in the direction of Sittler's sod house. Hoover paused for a moment and with a look of sincerity said to me, You know there's plenty of room around here for other men to establish themselves in this business. If a man had a freight wagon and a few extra dollars, anyone with a speculative turn of mind could join in on this enterprise. Hoover's last statement set my mind in motion. I began to think about the possibilities. That evening, before leaving to get our building supplies, two whiskey wagons arrived just below our campsite. My partner and I witnessed from a distance the making of a wagon bar. The driver jumped off the wagon and pulled a pin from a hinged door. The driver eased with care, a small ramp to the ground. We could see the wagon stacks of whiskey barrels ready for sale. The next day, my companion Charlie Stewart and I drove our wagon to Russell, Kansas. Our idea was to purchase two wagon loads of lumber to build a saloon. We purchased our lumber at Russell, finding our first location 100 miles away in Hayes was sold out. With two wagon loads of lumber, we came back to the town site and within a week erected a 14-foot structure. To all that know this story, I became the second owner of a saloon in these parts, selling whiskey for 25 cents a shot right next to Mr. Hoover's sod plank tent. Buffalo City, within a month's time, was a quaint little village. This was a speculators' sight to see, for Buffalo City was now made up of crude-framed buildings, half-wood and half-dugout. The streets were populated with freighters, hunters, and soldiers. It did not take long for entertainment to reach the small makeshift town. The gamblers and women started to arrive in big-bowed, mule-driven wagons. These wagons would do for business until they could find an establishment. I remember one such enterprise from Hayes City, with two 10-mule wagons abundantly equipped with refreshments. Feeling of excitement began to grow with the anticipation of the arrival of two wagon loads of entertainment. The exciting rumors carried with them the dreams of dancehall girls to be rallied in the streets. Men traveled west on mounted horses to meet and escort a traveling caravan into town. As the white-sheeted wagons pulled forward into town, guns from onlookers blazed into the air. I could not help but notice how the sheets of each wagon had been rolled up displaying the wares within. One of the wagons carried in it two gamblers dressed in frock coats, six well-dressed girls, and some roustabouts to do their work. A large gathering of fans moved in on the second wagon holding whiskey barrels and cases of bottles. I stood on the doorstep of my saloon, watching the wagons come up the dusty street, pawing to a halt in front of me. What I witnessed next was a fine display of calves as the girls clambered down over the greased wheels holding up their billowy skirts. The sight of it caused an entire company of dirty, bearded, gun packing men to push their way forward into a heat driven crowd. It was at this time when the second round of gunfire, with more serious intentions, erupted as the hired protectors yelled out firing warning shots over the crowd. <laughs> The gunfire and the verbal warnings broke the tension, causing a sudden silence. To my surprise, the crowd began singing and dancing in and around the wagon. I went back into my wood-raftered 14-foot square building of a saloon and prepared for what was coming next. It was not long before the next round of disruption hit the streets of the small makeshift town. Two ruffians had pulled one gambler who had arrived that day out of his bed. A gambler by the name of Charlie Morehouse was forced into my saloon for a late-night drink. One of the ruffians, I knew it to be a man named Langford, who was complaining to Charlie about being with his best girl. Charlie stated she was a dance-hall girl who meant very little to him. Langford insisted Charlie have a drink on him. He wanted to make amends for his rudeness. He told Charlie he was sorry for the disturbance and should never have pulled him out of bed. Langford continued to press his will on Charlie, stating... "'Charlie, you should thank me for saving you "'from that meaningless dance hall girl.' Langston began to laugh as the other two men joined in, overseeing Charlie with vigilance to the bar. Morehouse, quieted by the looseness of the three ruffians, agreed to drink with them. After serving the four of them over a period of time, I noticed that Morehouse had consumed less of my barrel of whiskey than his captive companion. With two of the ruffians held their glasses high, the third being outside, Morehouse slipped out the door. This was in the middle of a salute to him. A great deal of laughter followed Morehouse's escape. Langford and his three companions decided to take the same path out the door. I heard their laughter for a few minutes lessen in a the distance. Then with great surprise, Charlie barreled through the back door of my saloon. He was now in the company of four of his friends. Charlie was visibly upset and wanted to know where Langford and his gang had gone. I answered, saying, They left about two minutes ago, headed west between the freighter wagons. I nodded my head in a forward direction and stated with certainty, They're headed toward the place where you were once bedded down. I pointed in the direction where I had seen the Langford gang last. Morehouse stepped out the door and looked in the direction pointed out to him. He then pulled his pistol and screamed at Langford, You better leave my girl alone. His voice was like a clap of thunder, startling the town into a state of uneasiness. Morehouse and his men then opened fire on the Langford gang. The Langford gang returned fire. I, on the other hand, left my feet and dove behind the bar. I could hear from behind the bar bullets flying thick into the walls and through the windows. Each iron ball slung around me peeled through the wood like a muffled bell. I felt the splinters of wood and heard lead balls dance through the saloon around me. Rolling over to my side, I saw one of the bullets from the street hit a customer. He was running out the back door through the thickest smoke when his heel exploded in a gush of blood. After all the six guns had blazed their last bullets, I peeked out from underneath my bar. I saw Morehouse. He was groaning and holding his arm. I could see he had been shot through the fleshy part of his arm. I then ran cautiously to the door, landing on my knees. I stayed low with my head close to the doorframe. I peeked around out the doorframe through the lingering and smoke into the dim lit street. Langford's men were running away into the darkness. I then saw Langford. He was down on all fours crawling in the direction of the river. I got up and went to the back of the saloon to assist my customer with his wounded heel. He was nowhere to be found. I looked for him out my back door, and to my surprise, I found a young man asleep on a cot. He got up from his state of slumber. He reached inside the door with some confusion for his coat hanging on a rack. The only words he said after finding the five bullet holes in his new jacket was, Oh my. He then walked off into the darkness of a starry, smoke-filled night. Come to find out the next morning, Langford had crawled off into some bushes and spent the night by the river. Langford had received the bad end of the fight. He was put to bed with five slugs in him. The amount of liquor he consumed in my store must have saved him from great pain. Langford's friends found him in a bad state but still alive. He was taken to Fort Dodge. There, at the Fort Hospital, he stayed for a long time until he entirely recovered. <laughs>